Lynch. Welcome to the show. A special episode this week. We had the Coms Day Melbourne Congress in the Sheraton in Little Collins Street in Melbourne this week across two days. It was the first time we've been to Melbourne with an event for two and a half years. And it was an enormous success, partly because people have been restricted from seeing each other because of COVID. So it not only did it feel like an industry conference, it also felt like a high school reunion appointment points, many people not see, having seen each other for a couple of years. Anyway, we, had, we covered a lot of big themes at the event. We had 37 speakers across the two days. And on day one, a, a really big focus was on national infrastructure, particularly from a regional point of view and from a national resilience point of view. Um, keeping in mind some of the recent events like the floods and, and the, the cutoff of Tasmania from the mainland when a couple of the cables went down recently, we, we covered those themes. Um, also 5G, and we actually had executives from the three major telcos, Telstra, Optus, and TPG Telecom, all, all talking to their plans and their perspectives on 5G. But the conference was opened by Regional Communications Minister, Bridget McKenzie. Now, there was an expectation that she might release the government's official response to the Regional Telecommunications Review, and also that she might preview anticipated budget announcements on Commonwealth investments and regional infrastructure going forwards. Neither of those things transpired. Um, Those announcements are going to be held for another day. Um, But she did paint a picture of how the government views regional communications as key to its overall economic policy for the regions of Australia, um, and also talked to the track record of the government in that area. How we're actually going to build rural and regional Australia have those massive inland capitals uh, that other countries do outside of our state capitals is actually by getting big business excited about living out in the regions. Make sure they see the competitive advantage of uh, doing business out there and because of connectivity, they can. And so one of my big conversations with the infrastructure minister who likes to talk about dams, roads and bridges a lot is to say connectivity infrastructure is as essential in the 21st century as roads and rail were um, 100 years ago. We need to get serious about investing in it. Um, In terms of what our uh, government has done previously to actually support that agenda, and I'm just sort of setting the scene of what we've already delivered, and hopefully our response to the uh, Regional Telecommunications Review will build on this Um, investment. With investing in the regional connectivity program, uh, where the first round uh, provided $117 million for over 130 place-based telecommunications infrastructure across the country, and now we've got round two uh, to the tune of $112 million. What we found as our um, iconic mobile black spot program has rolled out is there are places in this great land where you can build a base station wherever you like and that community cannot get connected, whether it's topographical issues, uh, whether it's issues around um, seasonality. You think about Port Ferry down um, on our west coast here in Victoria. Huge surge of population at certain times, like the Folk Festival, uh, where no matter what telecommunication infrastructure you have there, um, it crashes with that massive surge of uh, influx of people. So how do we actually ensure that communities in the regions can maximise their connectivity? That's what that program's all about. 
As I said, the Mobile Black Spot program are up to six rounds, uh, partnering with uh, the big telcos and, in many cases, state governments to roll out over 1,200 base stations uh, since its inception, which has transformed the communities these base stations have gone into. Where it's not um, competitively advantageous for telcos to go there without support of government, and I'd like to thank the Australian taxpayer for funding um, more than $875 million into this program over its time uh, to ensure that those of us that do live in the regions can enjoy a level of connectivity um, that is taken for granted in the cities. Isn't it nice to hear taxpayers being thanked? It doesn't happen enough. Um, now, Telstra Infraco CEO Brendan Riley uh, followed um, the minister and, of course, Infraco is really quite a big part of providing a, a national infrastructure capability for all comers t- to use and turn into end services. It has ducts, it has fibre, it has towers, it has all sorts of interesting things. Um, so Brendan talked a bit about the challenges of Telstra, traditionally a vertically integrated operator, had in establishing a standalone wholesale unit and some of the principles underlying what they're seeking to achieve with it. So the first, from a Telstra perspective, don't screw up our business. Don't, we don't want to go through this whole Infraco creation thing and screw up business. Uh, we have to absolutely maintain continuity and everything we do has to be around continuing great delivery. Uh, Telstra wanted to continue to differentiate and lead in the market, which it does in a number of areas. And then from an Infraco perspective, you know, we also wanted to be market competitive um, for all of our assets. We wanted to be a standalone business. We felt that that had more gravitas and credibility with uh, the, um, the, tel- the telco community and also with some of the important external stakeholders. And then we needed a strategic relationship in the middle that worked. And from my perspective, Telstra was going to become one of our biggest customers, so we had to treat them as a large, precious, valuable customer. And we had to get that dynamic to change. On the right-hand side, that's more about the economics. Um, If you're working with shareholder funds, what you don't want to do is a whole lot of activities which don't drive accretive value. So we had to really think that through. And when, when you've done all the financial analysis, you come to the point that you actually need a strong Telstra and you need a strong Infracove. If Telstra is the biggest customer of Infracove, then it's helpful if it's strong. If Infracove is weak, then what's the point of doing it? Um, so trying to get that balance between uh, the two was very, very, very important. Now, take off Telstra, take off Uh, the the name of that company, put the name of your company into this slide because the other thing that I realised as we were doing this is these principles would apply to anybody in the industry that we are working with. NBN's a big customer, Optus is a big customer, TPG's a big customer, many of you here are big customers. So we have to have a set of principles that we can really live by. We, from there, worked hard on the scope, so what assets were in scope and out of scope. We concluded towers should be in scope. We then started to work on the intercompany agreements and really they're the hardmost commercial contracts and commercial arrangements between Infracom and Telstra. 
Being late to Infraco's great because you can go and look at what the rest of the world has done. Uh, you can look at the mistakes, the things that weren't, that didn't get quite right, items that caused tension, um, and you could go and look at a lot of organisations around the world. So Chorus and Spark was one that we spent a little bit of time talking to in terms of if they had their time over again, what, they, what would they have changed? Um, so if I'll give you an example of one item, if we look at towers, uh, the early towers infrastructure models were put a click, bill every time you want to access a tower, no matter what you want to do. Uh, we thought that was a loser model, and so we've gone with a surface area model. Uh, you can book and you'll be billed for a surface area on the tower, and you can access it as many times as you want. That was one example. One of the other principles, we were going to have standard rate cards on all the infrastructure assets for Telstra and for any other customer. It just makes it so much easier and, and it makes sure that you can get the competitive dynamics right. And really, the intercompany agreements reflected a lot of the commercial arrangements that we already had with uh, you know, many of you in the room. We then had to move through the economic modelling, so getting that balance right. For towers, it was pretty easy because there's a lot of uh, um, you know, financial and commercial information about towers. Fiber was the same, but with some of the other assets, it was a bit more challenging. Now, not everyone has such a rosy view of what's going on. Um, Optus VP Regulatory and Public Affairs um, Andrew Sheridan pointed out that if if telco is to be regarded as such a, a key aspect of the critical infrastructure needed to keep this country going well then maybe it needs to enjoy a higher level of profitability which he, he would argue is perhaps partly regulated away and, and, and also partly a product of market forces now, he had a look at the profit results from the banks from last year and compared it to telco and found a, a, a very unfavorable comparison as far as telcos are concerned profit of the smallest of the big four banks was $8.5 billion, more than four times as profitable as our entire sector. Let me put that another way. The profit of our entire sector was a quarter of that of the smallest of the big four banks. Over the past five years, we've seen our revenues and margins decline. Our return on invested capital is at historic lows and arguably below industry cost of capital. Yet, as an industry, we've continued to invest and invest at record levels. Optus alone has consistently invested $1.5 billion during this period. That investment allows other businesses big and small, to sell, to buy, and actually to operate. Optus's annual mobile investment contributes around $18 billion to, to the national economy each and every year. But this situation is not sustainable. And as a sector, we face a real issue maintaining these levels of investment given current industry returns. Optus recently turned 30. We commissioned a 30 Years of Yes report to mark the occasion and reflect on the past three decades. Over that period, we've invested $44 billion 
into Australia. We supply more than 11 million services through our fixed mobile and satellite networks nationally. We employ over 13,000 people either directly or as contractors. Other businesses rely on our infrastructure, nearly every one of them to varying degrees. We provide services that have seen Australia through the pandemic. Perhaps not in the way our frontline health workers have, but still important in maintaining a healthy nation. We provided emergency SIM cards and iPads. We gave data boosts and waived frontline health workers' bills. We hired people who were stuck down from other industries. And we supported small businesses transition to remote working. We kept Australia connected. Now, another perspective came from the founder and CEO of HyperOne, Bevan Slattery. Now, HyperOne, just to remind you, uh, plans to build a national and redundant fibre backbone going between all the state capital cities, Canberra, Darwin, and some other places, including Townsville and Hobart and Launceston. Now, some parts of that network, particularly the bits in Tasmania, Northern Australia, and so on, are uneconomic from a commercial point of view. So Bevan is pretty keen to get a bit of government help and, and push along to make it all happen. And as a consequence of that, he laid out what he regards as two challenges for policymakers and regulators to help facilitate the uh, economics of infrastructure such as his proposed backbone. So basically I've got uh, two challenges here today um, for government or for politicians or people here. The first is whoever in the government or opposition wants to come forward, if you give $30 million, we will guarantee to extend HyperOne Cable directly into Hobart to Sydney. And so that issue of Tasmania going offline should not happen. You'll have quadruple path, full path diversity. Those existing paths all come out of the northern of Tasmania into Victoria today. And ultimately to get down to Hobart, they pretty much follow most of the same transmission lines to get down through there. So we've actually got to create a loop to do that. So if we're serious about doing that, we're spending $750 million potentially on a new football stadium there. I think it's really important we, we chip in 30 and to make sure we do that. And as part of that, I'll make sure that RNET, the Australian Academic Research Network, gets uh, 400 gig as well for that to make sure the education community is there. The second challenge, I think, for today is let's just stop giving handouts to Telstra. Right? Telstra literally receives billions of dollars from the government every year. You know, a billion increase into two from MBN. They get hundreds of millions from universal service obligation. They get tens of millions of dollars from the Black Spot program, which is really just to further entrench their monopoly position in regional mode Australia. Let's change that. Let's actually look for the regions of what we need to do in the future. Let's commit to only funding neutral host mobile base stations. No more, no more black spots or anything else. You must be a neutral host base station. Let's migrate away from the decades-old USO that we've got, which is focused on fixed line, which is completely useless as soon as a farmer leaves their front door. Right? We've got to make sure that we, we, we allow these people that actually have a universal service obligation. We're not in the 90s, we're in the 2020s. It's a mobile-first world, and we've got to re respect that. All the funding, I believe, in black spots, 
Uh, in the USA, it should be bundled together, and we should look at a decade-long project and, and get and get offers from people to actually build that. I think infrastructure providers, super funds, uh, there'll be a whole new class of investors that will come in and actually make a long-term 10, 20-year investment to build that neutral infrastructure, neutral wireless services available to everyone in regional Australia. So my, my call out to politicians is, let's make sure Tasmania doesn't fall off the grid, and importantly, let's stop giving money to Telstra unnecessarily. Let's create competition in regional remote Australia because that's the only way we're going to improve that for the future. Um, later in day, on day one at the Commerce Day Melbourne Congress, we had a big executive session on 5G networks in Australia, and we had the leading lights from across the three telcos in their management ranks talking to what they were doing in 5G and what their immediate plans are to develop their networks. So first cab off the rank was Telstra Network and Infrastructure Executive Iskra Nikolova. Here's what she had to say. We expect by 2025 to reach 95% population coverage in Australia. In a country as big as Australia, there is no doubt this is a very ambitious vision. We already have the largest and the densest 4G and 5G networks in the country. Um, we were at 77.5 population coverage at the end of December. I think at the moment we are above this number, slightly under 80% population coverage. This just shows that 5G is enabled and available to most of the customers in Australia today. We will continue to expand our regional coverage and we have publicly committed to add another 100,000 square kilometres of regional coverage by 2025. We will also continue to expand both our 4G networks and our IoT networks. So, to give you an example, we expect the LT coverage to go from around 2, two million square kilometers today to about 2.6 or 2.7 million square kilometers by 2025. Our IoT network, based on narrowband IoT, will go from something like 4 million square kilometers today to 5 to 5.5 million square kilometers by 2025. So, we're talking about significant expansion in terms of coverage. These are rough numbers, but they do give a sense of where we're going and how we plan to enable another KPI to which we have committed by 2025, which is that 80% of the traffic of our network will be carried over 5G. Of course, that kind of KPI is enabled by the availability of devices. 5G devices are available already um, in our network clearly today, um, and more recently, even millimeter wave enabled devices have become available. I'll talk about millimeter wave a little bit more later in this presentation. So all these factors together will accelerate the migration to 5G. Um, and I think um, we have committed publicly that we will shut down our 3G network um, effectively by, by 2024. And um, what this will mean for us is that the investment will continue to be channeled into 4G and 5G, and most certainly our 4G network will continue to expand together with 5G. Now, 5G, uh, unlike other radio access network, 
types, it has multiple bands, multiple spectrum bands. And um, we have invested both in mid bands, which is 3.6, but also in millimeter wave at 26 gigahertz spectrum. We have acquired about one gigahertz, and that is a huge amount of spectrum of millimeter wave in the recent auction <coughs> in Australia. And we have been rolling out uh, those sites um, in major cities such as Sydney and Melbourne. We have already uh, hundreds of small cells enabled for millimeter wave. And more recently, we also brought in millimeter wave device in the market, which is the Google Pixel 6. The reason why millimeter wave is so important is because it enables ultra-fast broadband. Um, and we are seeing significant speeds hitting the range of something like 4 gigabit per second. So significant speeds higher than what uh, customers can get at home on, on typical broadband connectivity. So um, we, we have we have committed also to continue to enhance um, not just mobile experiences, but also fixed experiences in our network. And we've got a number of modems supporting uh, effectively 4G backup over 5G. And that these are more than 2.3 million, as you can see from the slide. Um, so 5G is used not just for consumers, not just for enterprises, but also to enhance fixed experiences in our network. Then we um, heard the view from Optus, from their VP Access Network's strategy, planning, and quality, Ken Wu. Well, the world of 5G is definitely the key focus, as you have heard from our friends in Telstra as well. And we are not alone in this. All of us are focusing on this rollout. However, we do a little bit differently at Optus. The innovation and pushing boundary has been at the heart of everything that we do, and 5G is no different. And Optus is, has provided the Australia's fastest 5G network. I know that Telstra is uh, talking about the fastest network, but we are the fastest in 5G. <laughs> and then it's been tested time and time again, and we continue to sit in the front, and there's no clue. And I know that DJ <laughs> talked about, you know, speed is not everything, which is true, speed is not everything, but speed and consistent speed is still a very, very much a fundamental attribute. When, cons uh, when, when consumers or the enterprise customers take up a product or subscribe to a plan, particularly for the 5G. And don't panic, we are not going to stop there, just at the speed. I'm going to talk about a little bit more later on of building the network's capability that will cater for the gamers as well. All right. So it has been the deliberate uh, strategy of ours to ensure that our customers get the full benefit of the incredible 5G technology, and that's uh, why our mid-band and the high-band spectrum assets are so critical. They really do hit the sweet spot, providing the coverage and speed to customers so that they can get the best of the both worlds. But we are also rolling out the 5G across the other spectrum bands as well. Like, for example, Optus 5G Max, which is the millimeter waves product offering. And we are already cracking the speeds of in excess of 5G, uh, 5 gigs per second. And I know that most of you here are already very much aware of the benefits of millimeter waves in that it, the, uh, it ups the end of the 5G technology, offering the incredible speeds 
the massive bandwidth and enormous capacity and shorter latency. We have been utilizing these unique features of millimeter waves when testing the other technologies as well to combine the capabilities to deliver the transformational and as well as evolutional solutions and products. Take an example, the recent use case that we have demonstrated on URLLC, the ultra uh, reliable and low latency communications that we brought to life on our Optus 5G network in the Optus campus in Sydney. By combining the URLLC suite of the 5G standalone features <clears throat> and also the millimeter wave spectrum capability, we were able to achieve the network's latency of less than one millisecond, which is much faster than the human brains react as well. And the reliability level of 99.999%, the five nines. And this is a big step toward a, uh, forward in the 5G technology with a host of new use cases expected to be realized in line with this technology development. And furthermore, throughout the year of 2021 and 2022, Optus has also focused on the various 5G technology innovation and many being the first in country. To name a few, we developed or we deployed our first set of the dual band FDD 1800 MHz slash the 2100 MHz active antenna unit just earlier this year. And we were the Australia first to have the 5G NR dual connectivity across the millimeter wave spans and 3.5 gigahertz spectrum. And also we deployed the new generation interleaved passive active antenna for 5G as you previously heard in that um, presentation from Comscope as well and which significantly reduced the 5G rollout and the antenna installation complexity. Now in addition to testing these new 5G technologies, we continue to leverage on our existing assets to make sure that they are working for us and our customers in the right way. For example, our 2300 MHz and 2100 MHz spectrum have so far also been used uh, in addition to the 3.5 GHz to strengthen and evolve our multi-band 5G networks to meet the different needs of the customers. And these spectrum bands are shared between the 4G and 5G and we intend to progressively refarm them over the time as demand in 4G declines and the need for 5G continues to grow. We continue to roll out our 5G um, networks across the country and just recently we, ha we have expanded our footprint to Tasmania as well. And getting our 5G network into regional Australia is on the top of our list. Okay, and last but definitely not least, uh, TPG Telecom General Manager, Wireless and Transmission Network, Diego Lopez. And of course, uh, a lot of anticipation of his presentation, given the recent network and spectrum sharing deal that TPG formed with Telstra. What do we think about 5G and where do we think that 5G is going? Obviously, the way we are looking at 5G is we are paving the roads of the future. You know, for a smartphone experience today, you know, 4G, 5G, I mean, it, it's not a, a massive difference that you have. But what we are doing now is to build a network that is going to enable us and our customers, you know, to, to be able to expand the economy on, on a new industrial revolution. 
you know, we are just at the beginning of a new, a new digital revolution, which is going to be based on uh, not just uh, IoT, uh, you know, industry verticals that before were never involved on in, um, uh, telecommunications. Now they are going to be. You, you start to see that they start to engage us for, um, you know, deployments on on a specific uh, solutions for them. So I think when we are looking at 5G, it's the gate for an evolution on the way the economy works. And, and we need to make something, and we need to build something that is uh, future-proof and something that lasts, you know, um, for many years to come. So in terms of um, the enterprise uh, the enterprise world, I think we are very focused on working with the academia, industries, and, and our vendors you know, to find solutions for real problems. And one of the key examples is that earlier this year we got the government grant for the Commonwealth for a 5G project that we are doing with um, in combination with UTS, uh, AWS, Nokia, and um, the Bendigo uh, Livestock Exchange. And you know, it's just something as simple as uh, county chip. You know, like it, when we are looking at uh, how to apply technology, we, we found one of the biggest problems on the, on the livestock world is when the transaction happens, how to make sure that we have a, a clear count of, uh, of the ships so they are not um, between the seller and the buyer, there is no dispute. Um, and we realized that 5G would be the perfect, uh, the perfect solution for that. So right now we are working with them. It's going to be deployed in the next, uh, in the next couple of months. And, and that's one of the examples of you know, how working with um, uh, industries and understand what are the real problems and working with uh, an ecosystem of partners, we are able to find solutions to real problems. And I think for TPE Telecom, the programs on the enterprise space is especially important as we are targeting to be a billion dollar business uh, in the enterprise space by 2025. Okay, let's, um, let's go on the network side. So how do we create the network? So I think it's been fairly publicized uh, some of the challenges that, um, um, that TPE Telecom had. Obviously the most paramount would be the Huawei ban. I think we are the only operator in the world who was 100% Huawei for radio transmission. Um, had a ban. So I think when, when we look at the, um, at the Huawei ban, it represented a very big challenge for us, but also a very big opportunity. When we are looking at uh, what we are able, we have been able to build taking the, the, since the Huawei ban, it's, um, it's a very special uh, solution that we found because instead of trying to have a half solution, you know, like it evolves, like some of our competitors uh, evolve from 4G into the 5G solution just doing a parcel upgrade of the platform. Obviously, we have a Huawei once, so it, it kind of uh, didn't look like uh, the best option. We had the opportunity to, to really knock down and rebuild. So, everything that we are putting in our network right now on radio and transmission, radio in Nokia, every piece of equipment that we have in every single band is 5G native. So even if I'm using, or we are using that equipment for 3G or 4G today, just remotely we can uh, move it into a 5G solution. So all the deployment and the heavy lifting that we are doing today is not just a partial refresh, it's just helping us to do a leapfrog in terms of technology and what we deliver to our customers. 
You know, it's um, it's been a, a lot of uh, work that we have to do on, um, you know, getting the, the 5G out there. Obviously, those phenomenons weren't waiting for us. You know, like, uh, you just gotta, um, you just gotta do it. You gotta do it to catch up with them. And one of the, the key things that we, we found in the rollout was uh, we partnered with, uh, again, an innovative solution to problems that we have. We, we are late on the rollout because we have to rethink all this. Uh, we need to roll out hundred sites a month, guys. You know, we need to have thousand sites by the end of the year. That's the, that's the goal. And, and then we partnered with a um, couple of Australian companies, not very uh, big companies in Australia, so Vecta, uh, and Site Pro, and, and we created a, a separate assembly process in, in Sydney. So to remove any dependencies on global supply chains and uh, manufacturing issues, uh, we are using uh, Ossimates too. You know, the, the steel that we use that normally would come from overseas, now we've done in Port Hemba. And I'm trying to find those solutions, innovative solutions to be able to to get our rollout working, you know, and make sure that we were meeting those uh, those uh, targets. And, and you know, I think it's uh, when when we look at the results that the Iñaki was CEO announced uh, last uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think uh, we are extremely proud to say that we are reaching ninety percent over ninety percent of population coverage in five G in Australia today. We deliver more than thousand sites. Uh, up to last year, and we are delivering over a thousand sites this year. So all the innovation that we have brought, and all the momentum, and all the capability that is being built in the company, is here to stay. Okay, now that's it for today. Um, part two of our review of the Melbourne Congress next week will focus on what was said about the NBN, both by NBN itself and uh, some of the stakeholders around it, including regulators and access seekers. Thank you for your company today. See you next time.